understand and learn and teach philosophy. And so he asked him, when did you first know that you wanted to be a philosopher? Oh, that's easy, his friend replied. I knew during the very first class that I took in college on philosophy. I remember sitting there in that class and thinking to myself, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. When do you think that others first knew that you were going to be a philosopher? Wright asked his friend. And his friend said, oh, that took quite a bit longer. You see, first I had to get through my program. I had to graduate, graduate from college. I had to apply to grad school and, and go to grad school and get my doctorate. Then I had to, after graduation, get, get a job and start teaching. And, and then after a few years of teaching philosophy, that's probably when others started to see me as a philosopher too. Again, it's one thing to know something about yourself. It's another thing for others to recognize that too. Well, here in our passage this morning, others are starting to recognize, starting to know, starting to realize something about Jesus. It's something that Jesus seems to have recognized and known about himself for quite a while by this point in this gospel. But now others are starting to recognize it too. Specifically, they're starting to recognize, realize, and know that Jesus is the Messiah. And so here, for the first time in Luke's gospel, we actually see someone else vocalize that. Someone else say it. They look at Jesus and say, you are God's Messiah. Specifically, one of Jesus' disciples is the one who says that. The setting here is a, is a private setting. Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus was praying in private with his disciples when suddenly he asks them a question, who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples start to answer. Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say that one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. Apparently dissatisfied with those answers, though, Jesus puts the question to his disciples themselves. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And in kind of typical Peter fashion, Peter blurts out an answer. God's Messiah, he says, that's who you are. Again, this is the first time in this gospel that someone other than Jesus realizes who he is. At least, kind of. That's because while Peter and the other disciples recognize that Jesus is the Messiah here, Israel's Savior, their Lord, the long-awaited one that God had promised would eventually come and redeem and restore Israel as his people, the disciples probably didn't recognize or understand yet exactly what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. This is something we've talked about repeatedly in this series, right? But that's because the disciples and pretty much everyone else back then probably believed in a different kind of Messiah. They probably believed in a political uh, Messiah, one who would come as a conquering king or a ruling general, some sort of holy crusader who would come with an army at his back, um, defeat all the foreign invaders who had taken over uh, the Israelites' land, kick them out, and then reestablish the kingdom of Israel in all its former glory. The only problem is that Jesus wasn't that kind of Messiah. Never has been, never will be, and still isn't for us today. And so repeatedly, over and over and over in the Gospels, in this Gospel, Luke, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and John as well, Jesus is at pains to clarify for his disciples exactly what kind of Messiah he really is, what kind of Messiah they need to believe in, what kind of Savior they, 
as his disciples back then, including us still today as his disciples these days, really need. And so that's why these two texts go together. I'm fully aware that the Bible, uh, that our Bibles in English these days split these verses into two different sections, at least uh, my translation, the NIV does. That's because verses 18 through 20 are considered one section, with the heading, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and then verses 21 through 27 are another section, at least in my translation, with the heading, Jesus predicts his death. And yet, despite how the editors of the NIV have arranged them, when you read these two texts, it is undeniably clear that they go together. A quick side note on that, by the way, but just so we're all clear on this, those headings that we have in our Bibles these days aren't actually in the original Greek or Hebrew text. Uh, neither, by the way, are all the chapter and, and verse uh, differences that we have in our text. And in fact, in the Hebrew, even the vowels are missing as well. Okay? Um, and I'm not saying that any of those things are bad, chapters, verses, or chapter headings. And trust me, trying to read Hebrew without vowels is absolutely no fun at all. Um, but what is uh, bad is arbitrarily reading those sections or even full chapters of Scripture as if they're complete, self-contained, self-sufficient passages that are fully developed in and of themselves. Because they're not. The Bible wasn't written that way, to be broken up according to chapter and verse. It wasn't designed that way, and so that's not how we ought to read it either. Point in case, if you still have your Bibles open, look at verse 21 with me. That's the first verse of the second section here. Uh, the, under the heading, Jesus predicts his death. Verse 21 says this, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. You see what I mean about these sections not being fully developed on their own? If you start reading here at Luke chapter 9, verse 21, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense, right? Jesus warned who not to tell anyone. What did he warn them not to talk about? You see how that doesn't exactly work without these verses that come before it? We need the context. We need the previous section to make sense of what we're reading here. We need what comes right before it to make sense of, of what Jesus is talking about. The point is that when we read Scripture, we have to read it in context. We can't just read a verse or a section or even a whole chapter at a time. Instead, we have to read everything that goes together whether that goes over the course of multiple verses or sections or chapters. And from time to time, we should read everything in the Bible because that's how it was designed, that's how it was written, and so that's how it was intended to be read all together. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so what happens when we do that here? What happens when we read these verses together, these sections together, this passage together? When we read this all together, we find out not just that Jesus is the Messiah, like Peter says in the first section here, but we also find out what kind of Messiah he is too. That's because after Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah in verse 20, Jesus gives a little teaching on what exactly that means. In verse 22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Again, this isn't what the disciples would have expected. In fact, if you look up this passage in some of the other Gospels, uh, Peter even rebukes Jesus after this. And he says to him, No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And yet, despite Peter's protests, that is actually the kind of Messiah Jesus is. 
he's not some conquering king. Instead, he's a suffering servant. He wasn't a ruling general. Instead, he was a roaming rabbi. He's not some holy crusader. Instead, he was a humble teacher. In other words, Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah who comes to the world to conquer the world by the ways of the world. Instead, he's a Messiah who comes to the world to win over the world in spite of the ways of the world. And it's important for his followers, both Jesus' disciples back then as well as for us as his disciples still today, to remember that. You see, it always, um, always kind of confuses me when Christians these days, at least in our culture, in our society, say things like, we're going to take this country, this culture, this world back. If what they mean by that is we're going to evangelize, uh, we're going to love others, we're going to be such good servants to our unbelieving neighbors that they won't have any choice but to join us. If that's what they mean, then no problem. I don't have any issue with that. I'm all on board with that. The problem is I don't think that's what many people mean when they talk about stuff like that in the church today. Instead, when Christians these days talk about taking back places and spaces where we used to be in power, I can't help but think that that's how they plan to do it, through power. And not spiritual power, mind you, not the power of the Holy Spirit or the power of the gospel and the historic Christian faith, but rather worldly power through intrigue, through manipulation, through force. And if that's the case, then I'll just say that I, for one, don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with that because our Savior didn't want anything to do with that. That's not the way Jesus went about his victory. It's not how he won the world. Because as he makes clear here in this passage, that's not the kind of Messiah he was going to be. And because that's not the kind of Messiah he was, it's not the kind of followers, disciples of him, that we ought to be either. So what kind of disciple does Jesus want instead? Well, he actually tells us. Verses 23 through 25, Jesus says this. He said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? What Jesus is telling us here, very simply, is that we as Christians are not supposed to be like the rest of the world. Um, we are not to be like those who fight for positions of influence, jostle for places of power, and then steamroll anyone who disagrees with us. We are not to be like those who lie, cheat, and steal our way to the top. And we are not to be like those who it seems that once they have power, will do whatever it takes to keep it, regardless of the cost. Instead, as Christians, I know this is kind of a radical thought, we're supposed to be like Jesus. My friends, we have a Savior who denied himself, literally took up his cross, and saved our lives by dying for us. If we're to be his people, those who bear his name, those who say that we're made in his image, those who claim to follow him, then why would we think that our lives would end up looking any different? 
I like how Joel Green gets at this idea in his commentary on this passage. It's a little long, but to be honest, I don't think I can say it better than him, so I'm just going to read it. I also printed it in your worship folders in case you want to follow along. Green writes this. He says, Discipleship entails radical self-denial, daily cross-bearing, and accompanying Jesus. Taking up the cross in its Roman context would have referred literally to the victim carrying the crossbeam of the cross from the site of sentencing to the place of crucifixion. Within Luke's narrative, however, this act has been transformed into a metaphor by the addition of the phrase day by day, or in our translation, daily, signifying that one is to live on a daily basis as though one had been sentenced to death by crucifixion. In this sense, dead to the world that opposes God's purpose, disciples are free to live according to the values of the kingdom of God proclaimed in Jesus' ministry. Green goes on, What Jesus is asking is that people give up their lives, their relationships, their conceptions of the world, and the practices that flow from these in order to follow him in his unreserved commitment to the salvific purpose of God. The vision of reality Jesus has been communicating and seeking to establish is topsy-turvy according to the standards of the world at large, with the result that those who adopt it can expect ostracism, conflict, and social dishonor. And yet, as Green says, this is not because Jesus is a masochist who embraces suffering, but because he is unreservedly committed to the purpose of God, a purpose that resists and is resisted by the habits and patterns and powers of the larger world. Jesus' message to his disciples portends a lifetime of discipleship as cross-bearing, not for the sake of suffering, but because this is how God's salvation will permeate the world. What, what Green is saying there, and it's, it's obvious when you really think about it, is that of course Jesus' way is going to look different than the world. Of course he's going to be a different kind of Messiah than what we would expect or imagine. Of course he's going to have a different kind of power, and of course the world is going to resist him. After all, the world is sinful, right? It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it was designed. It's not the way that he, Jesus, God himself, intended it to be when he created it. And we're not either. And so when Christ comes to redeem, renew, and restore the world and us and make it all the way it's supposed to be again, of course it looks different. Of course it seems strange and odd and inefficient. And of course it meets resistance. That's because what Jesus as Messiah is really trying to do is come into the world and undo all the things that are not right in a world that quite frankly has become pretty used to being not right. And so in short, what Jesus is telling us here is that he's a different kind of Messiah, come to do things in a different way. And if we're to follow him, then we need to be a different kind of people too. And that reminds me of a story I heard once. A few years ago, I, I took a group of students uh, that I worked with at Brookfield to a, uh, a youth ministry convention. Uh, we were there for a week of worship, uh, teaching, and small group learning, and as part of that, they had two speakers uh, who were doing the main sessions, uh, one of whom was the dean of the chapel at Dort University, Aaron Bart. During one of his talks, Bart told us that a few years ago, Dort was going through a rebranding process. Uh, put simply, they were uh, trying to find better ways to advertise their college to prospective students, and so as part of that, they were looking for a new slogan. Uh, those of you who have gone through the college uh, search process or maybe maybe currently going through it probably know what I'm talking about. 
But colleges always have these slogans to try to persuade prospective students to attend, right? Uh, they normally stock things like a foundation for life or inspire your mind or secure your future. Well, Dort was trying to figure out a new slogan of their own, and so Bart told us that he made a suggestion. Uh, he said his proposed slogan was this, come to Dort where you can finish last, become least, and get lost. Right? It's really good. Come to Dort where you can finish last, become least, and get lost. Unsurprisingly, he says his submission got shot down pretty quickly. Um, but as he explained, he actually had a good reason for suggesting it. And that's because he actually got each of those pieces straight from Scripture. In fact, he got all of them straight from Jesus' words. That's because in Matthew 20, verse 16, Jesus says this, The last will be first, and the first will be last finish last. In Luke 9, verse 48, Jesus says, it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Become least. And finally, from our text this morning, Luke 9, verse 24, Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Get lost. Finish last. Become least. Get lost. That's the kind of Messiah we have. That's the way that he went about winning this world. And as his people, that's how he has called us to live and work in his world too. Green said in his commentary that Jesus' way is topsy-turvy from the perspective of this world. I actually like the way that Dallas Willard puts it better in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Willard says that we as Christ followers are right-side-up people who are living in an upside-down world but that we have a Savior who is in the process of turning the world right side up again. And that brings us to the gospel this morning. Because that's what we look forward to, right? That's what we anticipate. That's what we long for. As human beings, we have eternity set in our hearts. And so we know, each and every one of us, deep down inside, that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so we yearn, we long for, we anticipate the day when it will all be set right. And one day, it will. Because this Messiah Lord that we have, this different kind of Savior, Jesus, will come again. He will complete his work of renewal, his work of redemption, his work of recreation. He will set this world right. He will set us right. And on that day, this world will no longer seem topsy-turvy or upside down or any other way because it will simply be the way that it's supposed to be. That's the hope made possible by our Messiah, Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the hope that we look forward to and anticipate. And it's the hope that we ourselves are called to embody already here and now as his disciples and people. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the kind of Savior and Messiah that you are. Because the fact of the matter is that we need a different kind of Savior and Messiah. If it was just up to us and the same old solutions and the same old ways of the world, we would never be able to solve the problem of our sin but you have given us a different kind of Messiah who went about things in a different way because it turns out that's exactly what we needed. 
as your people, those who bear your name and follow after you. Help us to also live out and embody that different way of life before a watching world. We pray this all in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.